So listen as I read John chapter 3. I'm going to read the, verse, the first 21 verses. John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is the very word of God spoken for us, his people. Let's come to God now in prayer. Father, we ask that you would speak with clarity through the words as I preach, that, that having heard your word, your spirit would now apply it to our lives. Lord, I ask that your spirit would be active, granting faith to those who are here without it, to those who come with doubts, with questions. Lord, that they would see the truth of your word in your gospel. Father, I pray that we would hear the good news announced to us by Jesus that we who are followers of Jesus would be, would be encouraged and emboldened for the work that he has given to us. Father, let the love of Jesus, our Savior, be evident to us this morning. We come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. When Nicodemus arrives, John gives us the detail that he came at night. Now, perhaps it's an incidental detail, and it's just one of those facts that is added. 
But given that Jesus speaks at the end of the chapter about darkness and uses it in a moral dimension of darkness versus light, it seems significant that Nicodemus comes at night. And when John repeats this visit later, he again adds that detail he came at night. Why would Nicodemus come at night? Well, perhaps it's because he doesn't want others to know he's talking with Jesus. Perhaps his reputation, his standing in the community would be at risk. Because look back as we're introduced to Nicodemus in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, if you are reading through the Bible and you're reading through the New Testament and you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospel accounts, when you hear the very title Pharisee, the description Pharisee, perhaps you hear at the back of your mind sort of a hissing and a booing. Boo, the Pharisees, because you know. You know the Pharisees are hypocrites who, who exalt themselves as being those who are righteous and good. But perhaps we need to, to remember the designation more broadly understood by John and the, the others who would have met Pharisees in their own day. Yes, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy, calls them like whitewashed tombs. They're painted clean on the outside, but on the inside it's death and decay. But remember, a Pharisee is someone so devoted to obeying God's commands that he studies God's Word. He seeks to keep all of the commands of God. He is one pursuing holiness. And so, he is a Pharisee, a religious man. He's also a member of the, the Jewish ruling council, one with authority and power. And so his very reputation would be at stake if people knew he was talking with Jesus, that peasant preacher from Galilee, Jesus who has no real authority, no real respect, no power at all. And so he comes at night. And he comes, we, we initially, when we hear his words, might think he comes as, as one who is inquiring. He's coming to figure out who Jesus is, and, and I believe that's what he's doing. But he comes as one who thinks he can stand in judgment over Jesus. Look, look, at, look at what he says in verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. So it seems he comes with a glimmer of faith, right? He calls teacher Jesus a rabbi. He's a teacher. That's a, a term of respect. He acknowledges that Jesus is someone who has come from God. But, but he doesn't say, you are the one who has come from God. He doesn't say, you are the Messiah who has come from God. He, he simply says, well, there have been some miraculous signs you've performed. Therefore, you must have something to do, maybe tangentially, or, or at a distance with God. Now, in John's gospel, we've actually only, at this point in the gospel, seen one miracle take place. Back in chapter 2, the, the, Jesus was at a wedding feast, and he turned water into wine, a, a famous miracle. But, but at the end of the chapter, we're, we're told that Jesus is already performing other miraculous signs. And so it's these signs, these miracles, that, that bring Nicodemus to Jesus. But you see, while he comes with respect... He comes acknowledging something good about Jesus. He comes sort of standing there saying, well, I'm here to figure it out. I, Nicodemus, am here to judge whether or not you, Jesus, are really, truly connected with God. I think I'm the right person for this. 
I'm a Pharisee, a religious leader. I have authority to, to make judgments on the ruling council, and so I will stand in judgment of you. But Jesus immediately takes control of the conversation, derailing the, 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 the conversation. Look at verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared. So Jesus now will speak with authority over Nicodemus. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus is laying the gauntlet down. He is saying, oh, you think, Nicodemus, you will stand here and judge me. You don't know anything. Actually, unless, unless you have been born again, you can't understand any of these spiritual truths. Now, that phrase, to be born again, is, is a simple enough analogy that like you were physically born, you need to be spiritually born again. But it's an odd image. So, so Nicodemus in verse 4 then says, well, wait, wait, wait. How is this possible? You can't be born a second time. The, the image doesn't, doesn't make sense. And, and perhaps you and I, we don't have the same confusion that Nicodemus had because we have the, the fuller explanation. We, we even perhaps use that kind of phrase. We describe ourselves as born-again Christians, but do we, do we use the phrase the right way? Are we pointing to the transforming work of God? Are we pointing to the things that, that we hold on to? My, my dad, who's a, a, a preacher, but often preaching outside in, in, at, at, at racing events and at car shows, I was with him once when, when he was interrupted by, in, in conversation with a man after a worship service, and the, and the guy said to him, you aren't one of those born-again Christians, are you? And my dad said, what do you mean by born-again Christian? And the man said, one of those hypocritical, judgmental, know-nothing people who just point their finger at everyone else and tell them they're wrong. Nope, not one of those. But I am one who was a sinner saved by God's grace and with God's radical intervention and transformation in my life. I've come to find a gift of true grace. See, we've used that phrase perhaps too casually that we are born again. It's a biblical phrase. It's on the very lips of Jesus. But have we, have we really understood it, or, or do we come like Nicodemus with, with confusion? And so Jesus answers his question. When Nicodemus is asking, how, what's going on? Jesus answers by showing God's role in bringing us new life. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now, we might initially think Jesus is talking about water, that he's talking about the, a physical human birth, the, the mother's water breaks, but, but that's not what he's doing. He'll, he'll draw the comparison in verse 6, the flesh giving birth to flesh and spirit, so a fleshly human birth and a spiritual rebirth. What he's talking about when he says water and the Spirit, he's talking there about being born again. He's using language that would make sense to Nicodemus, even if for us it's a little bit perplexing, because he's speaking to a man who is a Pharisee, a man steeped in the Old Testament, a man who has, who has been faithful to his Bible reading plan and has, has read through, and so he uses the imagery that comes out of the prophets. And we could turn to Ezekiel 36, but, but some of these verses will be familiar to you, because we use them to remind ourselves in worship at times of God's love and forgiveness. In Ezekiel 36, the prophet, speaking the very words of God, 
we read, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Jesus says you must be born of water and the Spirit. You must be spiritually cleansed. He will, the, the, the passage in Ezekiel 36 continues, I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. See, to be born of water and the spirit means to be born again. To be cleansed by the work of God, our sins forgiven. To be given his spirit so that we can obey we can live in new obedience following after God. That's, that's what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3. God is the one who does the work in you. And Ezekiel, er, he's, he's saying, Nicodemus, you've, you've heard Ezekiel speak about this. You've heard the other prophets. You should have been anticipating this. You should have been begging God for transformation rather than trying to bring it about on your own. See, we don't clean ourselves up in order to bring ourselves to God. We come to God in our sin and brokenness, and He cleanses us. So you don't, get, you don't get righteousness from God by being a Pharisee, by being a member of the Jewish ruling council. You don't make yourself right with God by showing up at church the Sunday after Easter. I mean, you do realize you like, you're good for the whole year, right? See, but sometimes we think it's the things we do that make us right with God. See, we, we come in new obedience because God has cleansed us, because God has given us new life. We have been born again. But yet, Nicodemus is, is still confused, and so, so he asks again how. He, he's beginning to see that it's, that it's God's work, but, but how does this take place? And notice again how Jesus continues to push back at, at Nicodemus' self-righteous understanding. Look at verse, look at verse 10. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? You come here with all of your credentials, in all of your righteousness, and yet you don't understand the simple starting point for following after God. And then look at verse 11. We see Jesus assert his authority. It's a phrase we've seen him use in verse 3 and again in verse 5. I tell you the truth. Maybe your, your translation, if you have an older translation in front of you, it says, truly, truly, I say unto you. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, amen, amen, I am speaking to you. Jesus is saying, see, you came trusting in yourself. I'm going to speak authoritative words to you now. I tell you the truth on my own authority, Jesus is saying. And then as verse 11 continues, it, it, it's, it's perhaps a little bit perplexing because Jesus moves from speaking in the singular, I tell you, to speaking in the plural, we speak. Now, it might be that when Jesus is, is switching from first to, he's, he's, he's switching from the singular to the plural, that he's, that he's in a sense mirroring what, what Nicodemus did back in verse 2. When Nicodemus arrived, he said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. Hey, uh, who's, who's the we that you speak of? You snuck in here at night by yourself so no one else would see you. And then you come speaking as if you come with this collective authority, Nicodemus. And so it might be that Jesus is just pushing back at him rhetorically. But, but I think perhaps even more, and this will be clear in other parts of John's gospel, when Jesus speaks, 
He speaks the very words of the Father who sent him. So he can say, I tell you the truth, we speak to you. Who's this we? The Father in heaven and the Spirit and I, we speak to you this truth. Because Jesus comes with the full authority of God himself. He is God standing. He is the answer to to the question Nicodemus is trying to figure out. Are you, possibly, could you be the one? Could you be the one sent from God? And Jesus says, yes, we speak to you this truth. And the truth is that, that, that Jesus is the one, verse 13, the one who has come from heaven, the only one. He's the only one that can bring this kind of hope. And so we see Jesus' authority, but more than that, in Jesus' answer, we see his sacrifice. Because look at what Jesus says in verse 14, describing his own death on the cross. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, it's a simple analogy. Jesus has to be lifted onto the cross just as the snake was lifted in the desert. But it's only a simple analogy if you understand what Jesus is talking about. Now, remember, he's speaking to Nicodemus, so Nicodemus has no trouble here. Nicodemus was raised reading the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He understands this, and so, so we have to turn back to Numbers 21 in our Bibles. That's very near the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And then you add Deuteronomy. Those are the five books written by Moses. The five foundational documents for Nicodemus, but also the five foundational texts for us as a church. Now, now perhaps you've never actually made it all the way to Numbers. You started in Genesis 1 in your Bible reading plan, and you got to Leviticus. And then you decided, you know, let's look for a new part to jump to. Because there's, there's, a, there's a tediousness to the pattern of Israel's disobedience. But I, but, I, but I think that tediousness is there to remind us of, of how foolish we are as people. Because when we're in the book of Numbers, we are wandering with the people of God in the wilderness. The people who had been rescued by God in the Exodus, the whole book named after it, it's such a grand and glorious rescue that God brings, and yet they begin to grumble and complain, and they do it again and again and again. And so we turn to Numbers 21, and I'm just going to read a, a small section here from verses 4 through 9. As they're traveling through the desert, we find the people sinning against God. Numbers 21, verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Wait, what? I don't, I don't really remember this from my Sunday school lessons as a kid. Which would, this would be a great one to teach. I mean, but, but how many of you, with, with the mention of snakes, you're, you're kind of excited? No, many of us. Now, some of you, when you go to visit the zoo, you wish you could get closer and they would remove that glass so you could be right in there among the reptiles. But many of us, no, no, we, I, 
this distance is fine. God sent venomous snakes among them. They're biting the people, and people are dying. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. The Israelites moved on and camped at Oboth. As if this is just an ordinary day. Now, this kind of passage... This might freak you out. You might think, "Uh uh-uh. I mean, I was having enough trouble with Jesus and his nice teachings, and suddenly we're talking about venomous snakes being let loose in vengeance and violence from God. Uh Uh-uh. I'm out. I'm done. And, And you might be thinking that even if you've been here a really long time. Because there's something in us that says, no. No, that's not okay. We don't like this kind of judgment. But I think if we're honest, we would have to admit we need this kind of judgment. We need a God who is serious about sin because otherwise, otherwise the worst things that have happened to you will go unpunished. Now, kids, you might think, well, that'd be great. The worst things that I've ever done, I can just get away with? And that might be fun for a day or two, or maybe even a year or two. You would have fun doing whatever you wanted without any consequence. But here's the problem. What if everyone got to do whatever he wanted without any consequence? See, it's easy for us to judge others and to say, well, he deserves punishment. Because we instinctively know that a world in which there is no justice, there is no judgment, is a world in which we would not want to live. And so we might be horrified to read about the judgment here because it's in our face. It's so clear. Venomous snakes let loose on sinners. And yet because we live in a world where we have been sinned against, we need a God who brings judgment. Because the love of God is displayed for us in the judgment of God. When the people turned from their sin, God provided rescue. And so Jesus knows that Nicodemus will understand this lesson from his Sabbath school days. And so he says, back in John chapter 3, verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so that the people, when they looked to the snake, they saw their sin, they had to turn from sin, put their trust in God who provided rescue. So the Son of Man, Jesus is saying, so I myself have to be lifted up onto the cross. I have to be nailed to the cross to take your sin, and you have to turn, acknowledging your sin and put your trust in me. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Because what, what is the response then? What is, what is the result that comes when the Son of Man is lifted up? And you see how how Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up. This has to happen because your sin is so great. The only way for God to forgive you is by sending his Son. 
But what is the result? Look at verse 15. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. You were dead in your sins, but if you trust Jesus and his death at the cross, then you will be given new life. You will be born again. You will have eternal life, Jesus says. That's what's offered to us here. That's the response that's demanded, to believe in Jesus, to trust in him, to cry out to him, to say, I am a sinner who deserves judgment, but Jesus was lifted up in my place to come and to receive the gift of eternal life. Now, what's Nicodemus's response? Actually, he, we, we don't know from John chapter 3. We have to conjecture. I mentioned to you that he's, he's mentioned other places in this gospel. Interestingly, he's only mentioned in John's gospel. He's not mentioned by name in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, probably because the people that were first reading it, well, they didn't know Nicodemus. But the people to whom John is writing, they, they know Nick. You go, go talk to, to jolly old Nick. He's right here. You can ask him. He's, he was there. You can, he, John is giving us the eyewitness testimony, the account of, of Nicodemus' experience with Jesus. But we'd have to flip ahead a couple of chapters. Turn with me to chapter 7, verse 45, where we find Nicodemus with the Jewish ruling council. They now, by John chapter 7, are trying to figure out a way to get rid of Jesus. The guards who, who had gone to arrest him but were unable to do so, they, they say in, in John chapter 7, verse 46, no one ever spoke the way Jesus does. And the Pharisees retorted in verse 47, you mean he has deceived you also? Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. So do you see what's happening? The, the Jewish religious leaders are condemning Jesus. They are planning to arrest him. They failed earlier in the chapter, but they will not fail by the end of this gospel. And, and has Nicodemus made his faith public yet? No. How many Pharisees can you count? Hey, anyone here believe in Jesus? Anyone want to raise a hand? We see we see Nicodemus' hands firmly planted inside his cloak. But he does, he, he does speak up. Look at verse 50 of John chapter 7. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? He's saying, you, I think we need to listen. He's not willing yet to say, I went to Jesus and I've heard. I've heard the message of eternal life, of being born again. But he is saying, I think you need to listen to Jesus. But, but in verse 52, they reply, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. And you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. He's beginning, beginning to listen to Jesus. But we find Nicodemus one more time in John's gospel. Turn to John chapter 19 the very end of chapter 19, we, after the death of Jesus, we meet another man, Joseph of Arimathea, one who has not yet publicly proclaimed that he is following Christ, but has come for the body of Jesus. In John 19, verse 38, we read later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, 
because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. A man who has moved from a place of judgment, thinking he in John chapter 3 could stand in judgment of Jesus, to a man who's beginning to to see and, and speak about his faith in Jesus in John 7, to now, at great expense to himself, 75 pounds worth of myrrh and aloe to take the dead body of Jesus from the cross. He's beginning to see, understand what Jesus was saying. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Nicodemus believes. But what about you? Because John chapter 3 does not leave us merely to look at the life of Nicodemus. Jesus says that this message is for everyone who believes in him. Everyone who believes will have the gift of eternal life. And then turn back with me to John chapter 3. And as we turn, that that transition from verse 15 to verse 16, it's, it's not exactly clear if Jesus has stopped speaking in verse 15 and John is summarizing in verse 16, or if Jesus is still speaking. Now, I have a red-letter edition of the Bible that puts the words of Jesus in red font. Now, I actually would prefer not to have a red-letter Bible because it's harder to read the red letters under the glare of these lights. But I wanted a large print Bible to make it easier for me to read in the pulpit. That way, if I stand back and get excited, I can still, can still see where I'm supposed to be in the page. But, it, but in my Bible, the translators, they, they kept these words in red. Now, if you pin me down, I would probably say, I think John is summarizing for us now in verse 16. So I'd prefer, I told you, to have all of the letters printed in black. But honestly, you know what? You could print all of the words of the Bible in red. Because if we're talking about the words of Jesus, then this is the message of Jesus. Whether it's John chapter 3 or it's Genesis chapter 3, printed in red, Jesus is the one speaking it to us. And so the summary comes for us in John 3.16, a verse that if you've never heard any other verse in the Bible, this is probably one that you've heard. A verse that you as a child should memorize. This is one that should be at the top of your list. If you as an adult haven't memorized it yet, then pick a translation and memorize it. Because this is, this is a summary, perhaps you, we could say of the whole Bible, but surely we could say this is a summary of the Gospel of John. If you don't have time to read all 21 chapters, then read this one verse. Look at John 3.16 again with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you hear the good news? God loves you. God sent his Son to die in the place of sinners, and whoever believes in Jesus will receive the gift of eternal life. See, Jesus is, is he, he's, he's throwing it back at Nicodemus. Nicodemus, stop trusting in your pedigree. Stop trusting in your religiosity. Stop trusting in everything good about yourself and admit you are a sinner who deserves the judgment of God. 
Because in this passage, which shows us the beauty of God's love, a, a verse which, which we can hold up in the end zone with John 3.16, a verse you could, you could write on your eye black under your football helmet. It's a, it's a verse that clearly shows us God's love, but it's set here in the warning about God's judgment. Not merely the warning of the snake, but, but, but what comes after it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. See, Jesus doesn't have to show up to condemn the world because, verse 18, you stand condemned already. You stand guilty in God's sight. You are one who loves the darkness rather than the light. It's into that that Jesus speaks. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Have you received this gift? Do you understand the good news of what's announced to you? Have you turned from your sin, admitting you deserve venomous wrath of God, and yet finding hope by looking to Jesus Christ lifted on the cross? See, that's our only hope. But I said as we started, we were looking at the ministry of Jesus also for us to think about the ways in which we could share this good news with others. Well, this passage offers us the, the reminder, the encouragement that God is in the transformation business. God is in the cleansing business. God is the one who, who brings new life, who, 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 who helps people to be born again, that he is the one who brings that new birth. He is the one who gives his spirit. And so that should, be, should embolden us and give us confidence. But it should also let us see that mere honor for Jesus is not enough. Having a respect for Jesus is not enough. Showing up and, and calling him rabbi, acknowledging that he might be from God, acknowledging that he can do miraculous things, that is not enough. You have to acknowledge that he is the Savior who died on the cross. Jesus is the only way, our only hope. And so it forces us to humble ourselves at his cross. But this also shows us the simplicity of this message. As soon as you understand John 3.16, you can repeat John 3.16 to someone else. Memorize it or summarize it. Take it and, and make it known to others. It's simple enough that you can share it. You can, you can start a conversation, just bring it up. I, I was talking with someone who was, who was telling me how, how she was applying the, this sermon series. She said she got into a conversation with, with the receptionist at a doctor's office recently, and they got talking about how they both love to, to read, and, and the woman recommended a book series. And so went to the library, got the book series, and realized there's, there's a lot of church in this. There's a lot of Jesus in this book. There's a lot of, and so, so went back then the next time at the doctor's office and said, hey, I picked up that book that you recommended. I was, really, I was really intrigued by, by this portion when, when the main character went to, went to church. What did you think of that? Do you go to a church yourself? How about you come down Marsh Road to my church with me? See, it can be simple. Just repeat John 3.16. But, but maybe, maybe at times you, you need to go deeper. And that's what Jesus does with Nicodemus, right? He, he, Nicodemus wants to, wants to and, and Jesus is going to say, it's simple. You must be born again. I don't really understand that. Okay, let's go and let's do some Old Testament study. Let's, let's take the next step. Well, well I, one of the things that I'm most encouraged about that's happening right here at, at Faith Church, and, I, and I've told her this 
told her this privately, but, but now I'm going to tell you all publicly. We, we have a woman in our congregation who, who is so concerned about people that have come to, on Wednesday nights to Faith Explored who still don't understand it. They've heard it week after week that she said, I want to do something. And so she invited a, a group of women from Faith Explored into her home. And she, that group got, grew so big, she had to move furniture out of her living room so that they, that they could squeeze enough chairs in. It got so big that she said, can we meet at church? Do you know what joy it brings to a pastor? When you say, I have so many unbelievers that need to hear about Jesus, I need a bigger room. Who are you telling this week? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the hope of the gospel. Begin the conversation. God has shown his love to us. Wycliffe missionary translator Lee Bramlett, he was confident that God was at work among the Hadi culture, but, but as he searched for a way to, to understand their culture, as a way to explain the love of God to them, he struggled uh, to, to, to explain it through their, their history, through their daily life, through their, their rituals to these Cameroonian people. And, and he says, one night in a dream, he was dreaming about Bible translation. He's dreaming about grammar, because if you're a translator, a linguist, that's what you dream about, I guess. And he said, he, said, he, he began to, to ponder the word love. And so when he woke up, he, he began to, to wrestle with this question. He asked his wife, who was translating with him. He said, he said well, they, they noticed that, that all verbs in the, the language, the Hindi language, end in one of three vowels. They, either, they end in an I, an A, or a U. But the word love, they could only, they'd only ever heard the, it end in two of those letters. And so he gra- gathered his translation committee, this group of, of indigenous speakers of this language. And he said, could you deve your wife? He used the word love and, and added the I at the end. And they said, well, of, of course, that would mean the wife had been loved, but the love was now gone. Okay, could you deva? Your wife? Well, yes, they said. That kind of love depended on the wife's actions. She would be loved as long as she remained faithful and cared for her husband well. Could you devue your wife? <laughs> they all laughed at him. Of course not, they said. If you said that, then you would have to keep loving your wife no matter what she did. Even if she never got you water, even if she never cooked you a meal, even if she committed adultery, you would be compelled to just keep loving her. No, we would never say devu. The word doesn't exist. And then Lee, the translator, sat quietly for a minute, thinking about the love of God, remembering this Bible verse from his childhood, that God so loved the world. And so he asked them this question. Could God devue his people? It says there was complete silence for what lasted three or four minutes. And he said then the tears began to trickle down the faces of these men gathered. Do you know what that would mean? They asked. This would mean that God kept loving us. 
over and over, year after year, millennia after millennia, while all that time we rejected his great love. He is compelled to love us even though we have sinned more than any other people. It was a simple vow change. And it changed the meaning from I love you based on what you do for me to helping them understand God's love. I love you based on who I am. I love you because of me. See, God had encoded the story of his unconditional love right there in in their language. It was a word unused, grammatically correct, easily understood even when spoken to a child, a word they had never heard before that completely changed their view of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. As God's word is translated around the world, people are gaining access to the love story of God. The God devoted us enough to sacrifice his one and only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that, that our understanding of your love would transform us, that it would give us hope in the gospel. Father, that we would understand the depth of your love, that you loved us while we sinned against you, that you call us your sons and daughters because you sent your son to die in our place. He was lifted up on the cross. And so, Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that question whether your love could be this good, this free, this extravagant. I pray that they would be able to turn from their sin to see Jesus exalted on the cross, lifted up on the cross, that they would find in the death of Jesus the forgiveness of their sins. They would find in the resurrection of Jesus our hope of life everlasting. And Father, give us a confidence in this gospel message as a church that we would share this love with others, that we would speak these words even this week, announcing your great love to our friends and neighbors. Father, we rejoice in the love of Jesus Christ. We come because he died on the cross for our sins. We come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our 